welcome to Gem the GM. This is a podcast all about escape rooms, but from a games master perspective. So thank you so much for listening. Today, though, it is from several different perspectives, I suppose, because I've got a guest with me. I'm very lucky to have Tommy Honton here, and he is going to talk a bit more about himself a little bit and also about setting up an escape room because that is something that I've never been able to talk about and is something that I've always wanted to cover really but having never owned an escape room I've never really been able to talk about that part of it so Tommy's going to fill us in on what's what it's like to set up an escape room and obviously we'll chat about all sorts of other things in between so welcome Tommy. Thank you for having me. Would you like to start by introducing yourself a little bit for those that have never heard of you on a podcast before, though I'm sure those people are quite few and far between given how many, how many you've been on. <laughs> I feel honored to have been asked to be on some. Uh, my name is Tommy Haunton. I am a, an escape room owner and designer. I also do immersive interactive experiences, video games, uh, you name it. It's, uh, I get to do really cool stuff and I feel very honored that I wake up every day and get to make fun stuff for people. So, Yeah, you really have been involved in quite a lot of projects and you do own your own escape room as well, don't you, in LA, right? Yes, with my business partner, Don. Yeah, it's, oh. called, Stash, it's called Stash House in Los Angeles. And um, yeah, it's um, we feel very honored that people responded well to it. Great. I just thought I'd let our listeners know how you and I came to uh, sort of talk and, and meet in inverted commas, um, <laughs> because you were on an episode of Escape This Podcast where you had to play through one of their audio escape rooms and you had to do a, ta- a task slash puzzle where you had to draw something from instructions. And yes. uh, <laughs> as my listeners will know, I do these audio escape rooms for my friends and we did that one. And it was fun to try and draw it from the instructions. So I posted the picture of what I came up with and uh, and I tagged you guys and, and you commented and that's how we got chatting, wasn't it? Yes. And I was impressed uh, that my partner was listening. And fortunately, uh, Patrick, the other owner I was playing with, uh, my instructions were over his head because my instructions were not very good. And then it's funny because my partner drew almost exactly right. So it's funny. It's the people on the same wavelength seem to get it. But yeah, it, that is a lot easier to uh, do when you're not under the pressure of recording an episode. Yeah, which I know as well because I have played through one of their rooms with them. And uh, my brain afterwards just felt like scrambled eggs. I just, <laughs> I, and I had to go to work afterwards as well and actually run games. Wow, because it took a bit longer than I thought it was going to as well. They they edit it quite well, don't they? Oh, they're they're yeah, they're marvelous editors. And, <laughs> and I I I made a game and play ran it for them, and it was um, really nerve wracking because I'm like, this is going to go on for a long time. I don't want them to hate it. I am so worried. I hope they enjoy it. So yeah, I, I did a game for last season that uh, hopefully people enjoyed. But yeah, it was very nerve wracking to be on the other end. It's like I don't know how Danny does it so well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she creates, I mean, she's created so many now. But yeah, so it was Escape This Podcast that sort of introduced us. And then we got chatting and uh, and I said about coming on here to hopefully explain a bit more about a topic that I've never really been able to talk about in much detail. So I'm just going to kind of hand over to you really and let you chat about how to set up an escape room. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, this is my experience in the States, in California, obviously everyone's mileage may vary, but I would imagine, you know, in most places, it's going to be very similar in some ways and very different in others, but I can speak to my experience uh, and those I know of. So yeah. So you want to open an escape room. It, it, it's an, an interesting prospect and you may hear my cat who has some opinions she wants to interject. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting process because there was a point in time where it was a lot easier it's gotten, I think, a bit more challenging lately because I think the questions come up are you can open a room and, you know, go through the minimum requirements to open what would be considered a room. But is it a good one? Is it a good company? Are you actually making something that's meant to last? And what market are you in? If you're opening in a very saturated market like L.A. Um, that has, you know, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to really great games, you're going to have a more difficult time because you are up against a lot of competition you're going to have to really figure out how you're going to differentiate yourself. So it just comes from the perspective. If you're in the middle of nowhere and they have no rooms, 
then, you know, you're going to have no competition, but you're also not going to have, you know, consistent traffic. So the question is a worthwhile investment. So the question is, uh, when you first start is why do you want to open a room? Um, obviously people that in the early days started seeing some of the very first escape rooms out there, um, said, I can do that. And the challenge to that is it's very easy to assume you can't do that. You assume it's a puzzle in a room and that, oh, I can do wallpaper and decor and buy props from a thrift store and put some paper laminated puzzles in and some locks and keys. And, and that is deceptively simple. Yes, some rooms can look like that and are that simple, but um, really good rooms, really good design is intentionally meant to feel um, invisible in the same way that when you go to a restaurant, you don't see all of the logistic challenges and everything coming from the chef's point of view, where they had to go to culinary school. The menu was planned. There are probably, you know, a lot of dishes they didn't end up using. Um, all the ingredients come in, they have to cook it. Like you don't see any of that. You just get to order food and it comes out and you eat the meal and you're like, oh, this is just food. I eat the food. I passively consume it. Now I'm a chef. That's how silly it is to go through and play a game and be like, oh, I can do that. I'm now an escape room owner or a game designer. So there are some, I think, questions to really ask and assess. Like you have the one side that's like the used car salesman trying to sell your brain on like, oh, yeah, I should totally do this. But then their question could come up and say, why? So it's usually a couple of things. Some people from an ego standpoint say, I can do better. And maybe they can. Maybe the games in the market are very good. Maybe they're difficult or frustrating. And you like, I can do what better. So there's the ego side of like, I can do this. Then there's the other side of maybe this is a big business. You know, early days of escape rooms, you know, when there wasn't as much competition and you could open something that was, uh, you know, not a huge investment, you could make dividends. Um, But again, expectations have changed now. So if you're in it for the money, again, it is a tough investment um, to really get a consistent profit out of. And those are usually the two big ones. So going into that mindset, you kind of need to start with a space. Obviously, you want to have a budget. You need to have money if you want to go all the route to have investors. Like It's setting up an actual business. But the real linchpin of it is the location. A lot of places in LA uh, and different areas use office parks. So it's like an area that, you know, could be just a generic office and it gets redone in some ways um, to fill the rooms up. And so you're dealing with a floor plan that you're adjusting to because you can't rip out some structural walls, you know, in an area you're going to have to do with permitting, you know, is, is this a zone in, zoned properly for an escape room? What is escape room even zoned as? A lot of, you know, districts or areas are not even clear in their zoning plans, what an escape room is. And so some of them treat it as a gym, you know, others go and treat it like an arcade. I mean, you name it, the number of different classifications for people, because it's a new form of entertainment. Like they don't know. Adding in the term escape room is kind of hard. So you have to sort of figure out how to work with a local district because you don't want to get shut down because that's the other real challenge of, okay, you've gone through all the process, you've jumped ahead, you've opened you know, now what? And the risk is you may not be able to stay open if someone shuts you down because the city doesn't know what you are and you're not in the right classification. So that's probably the biggest headache. And this is the stuff that honestly is not fun. People love designing a game, building it, but the fun of getting a permit, paying rent, utilities, um, that to me is why a lot of people who are really brilliant designers don't want to go through with this. Because the idea of having a really awful landlord, I know companies that have had rooms that have flooded or, you know, malfunctioned because the building is not properly set up or maintained and not dealing with a bad landlord. And what happens when you set something up and you're stuck in the building? Like you can't just easily take it and move it somewhere else. It's hard. So those are a lot of things to consider um, when you're finding a building is, you know, what is everything that can possibly go wrong? A really cheap rent is also really helpful. And that's kind of the benefit of escape. You can put them in weird spots. You don't need a storefront on ground level. You can get a basement space, you know, a space that normally, um, you know, a building is going to have a hard time renting out. So mm-hmm. looking for a really unusual space that you can get kind of a good deal on with the landlord. You also want to, again, make sure safety is a priority. You want to make sure that it's going to comply with local safety regulations. Uh, fire exits are huge. That's probably the, one of the biggest deal breakers if they don't have adequate fire exits. So you, some buildings need two points of egress. So if you are in a basement space that has a stairwell down and that's it, 
you might be screwed. You may not be able to open in that space. So again, it's doing a ton of research, building your budget, and then finding the space. And you want to really kind of treat the landlord almost like a job interview where you're interviewing them to be like, are they going to be a good partner? Because ideally, if you open a game, you want to open it and keep it open for a long time. You want to keep expanding and doing more games. And so having a landlord who understands what you're doing on some level is good because if they get confused, they see what you're doing and they don't like it. I mean, honestly, if you're treating the building with respect and you are bringing them business and you're paying your rent on time, they should be very happy. But some people are very specific or particular about the building or weird about whatever it is you're doing. So finding a place that is understandable and understands what you're doing, and you're not going to, again, have to worry about getting shut down because someone shows up and like, what the hell is this escape room? I don't, I don't want that in my building. Because this signing a lease is a very big deal. Um, financially, you want to make sure you've got a company set up, you know, liability wise too. Like again, and don't take financial or any legal advice from me, but you don't want to as an individual sign the lease because what happens if you decide three to four months in, it's not going well and you need to close, you know, the landlord could say, I'm going to sue you for the rest of the lease. And at least if you have a company set up that's handling the finances, at least it protects you as an individual a little bit better. So business plan, having your money set up, and then when you sign that lease, find that perfect space. You really want that supportive landlord and um, a building that you can see is useful. Like think of all the things that happen when you go to a game. Okay. Is there an accessible bathroom nearby? How many times are you going to need to welcome guests, get them in a lobby or an area to greet them, have signage out? navigate them to a bathroom. It's just a lot of things to consider logistically because customers that are confused or frustrated about any process are going to be unhappy customers, you know, and you don't want someone who had a hard time finding your space now struggling to find the bathroom and starting the game in a kind of frustrated mode. Cause now you're going to have to try to really win them over. You want customers that are happy, feel taken care of. And a building can be a big part of that knowing sort of if you're in a complicated maze where the bathrooms, you know, 20 feet away through a crazy hallway and you're on the 10th floor and how the hell are they supposed to know that, you know? So building signage, you really want to consider all of that. And, you know, it's kind of like a formula where the price for your rent is a big, big factor because that will determine your success financially. So if you can find a space that is going to be amenable to your needs, but be on the lower end of rent, then you're good. Uh, If you're paying for an expensive space, you really have to start delivering a lot faster. You know, some people I know started with a pretty big runway of cash. They had six months of cash and it runs at a lot faster than you expect. You're probably going to go over budget. Then again, permitting, you're going to need to go through and build your space that if you're doing anything structural, anything electrical, you may need to get inspected. You may need to go through a process and that is really bureaucratic. It's also expensive. Some places require a thing called a conditional use permit which means you need to go to the city and pay a ton of money and wait months to get approval. And I've seen that process take up to a year for some places. So if you're in a city that has, yeah, it's crazy. So again, this is not a quick and fast, dirty thing. This is a, if you want to do it by the book, you have to be very patient and you can always cut corners, but that's where legal implications come into play. If someone gets injured in your game, if there's a lawsuit, if the city finds out you're open and you're not supposed to be, that's a whole host of legal issues and ethical issues that you run into. And to me, it's like, I'd rather sleep well at night and not worry about, you know, something bad happening because I'm operating something illegally or I didn't do the right safety thing. So let's say you've gone through all of that boring stuff, which I'm is not- thinking that's going to take a lot of time, you know, yeah. unless, you, unless you have ex- business experience and property rental experience and- all that kind of stuff. It's going to take a long time to research all of that and get, so you know, everything that you need to do. Yeah, it's hard. And that's again, a reason why I think a lot of people should approach this with a healthy dose of like reality, because it is hard to do. I know so many great owners who threw in the towel because the, this side of it sucks. And even Mm. after you're open, there's still so many things to deal with um, that are not even tied to escape rooms in particular for the fun part of it, but for the challenging part of it. So again, like, you know, dealing with a landlord, finding a space, getting properly set up and permitted, um, you know, so, so a, a word of advice then is that if you, for example, in, in Los Angeles area, there is a, an area in Orange County, um, south of LA called Irvine. In that city, Irvine, for example, a couple of escape rooms opened and Irvine ended up carving out a category 
for escape rooms. So opening one in Irvine is a lot easier because there's a very specific process. So it's not like you're having to go and explain over and over again what an escape room is. They know what it is. And there are a series of office parks within an area that are super easy because the owners know what an escape room is. So you go to them, they know what it is. So it's a lot smoother process. So that's why in some areas you see clusters of games opening because it means that, oh, it's easy to do it in this area because the city and the building owners here get what this is. So oftentimes Mm -hmm. finding a a friendly owner, um, you know, a friendly city is is an easy spot to kind of smooth things. But again, it doesn't make it ton easier. It just makes it a little smoother. But let's say you've gone through that whole process. Let's say you have your building, you have some money, you got a permit approved. And to clarify, I mean, that may mean architectural plans. That may mean hiring an architect. And again, in the U.S., it means hiring an architect who's licensed, who has a stamp, who is basically vouching for this plan. You take it to the city. They approve it with notes. You build it, and then they come and inspect it. And that may include wiring. You have to consider ADA accessibility, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which talks about making reasonable accommodations for those with disabilities. That means wheelchair access. So again, you want to think about your game, like, are you able to accommodate someone with a disability? Um, a lot of games are not accessible in that way. And so the question comes up is, are the bathrooms accessible? Again, you will probably get raked through the coals on faucet fixtures. Are those accessible for people who are handicapped? Like there's just tons of things to consider in your local code that you may have to adjust. So once you've gone through those plans, you've adjusted, you've built, you're wired, you're good to go. Now comes the fun part is making the game. Yay. You know, And this is the part that should overlap. You should obviously have a game in mind. You want to be as efficient in your timeline as possible because the longer you have a space, the longer you're paying rent, the longer you're losing money. So having a game in mind is really valuable. You don't want to have it though locked in 100% because you're going to find the space is something you want to adjust your game to. For Stash House, for example, we were deliberately looking for a space that we knew could accommodate our game but we're also open to leaning into the architecture of the space. So if there's things that are natural features to your building that are unusual or cool, lean into it. The other thing that's really fun is one of my favorite, and I think why a lot of people enjoy physical escape rooms are surprises. Is there a hidden room? Are there hidden reveals you can pull off? And if there's a naturally bizarre area or architecture to your space, lean into it. If people are going to get discombobulated because they don't realize there's a door behind there, lean into it. Some spaces, you know, usually office spaces are very square and people can kind of tell the layout of a room by if they got to walk down a hallway and they know the building ends, they know the only way they can go is one direction. And so it, it kind of ruins the surprise a little bit. And it's not that that's the only way you should actually build a game is to make things surprising. But if you can, it's to your benefit to make the game feel as exciting and surprising as possible. So leaning into that architecture and leaning into whatever space it is um, can be very helpful in the natural features of a space. It just feels like the, the game is more suited to the area if you lean into it. So once you actually have your space, you want to walk through your game and find the way to sort of lay it out. And you might be surprised how much the environment of the space changes based on how much you kind of integrate. But that should be done like the first day you get your space. And then once you get approved and you're able to start building, then you just want to really hit their ground running. People have different reasons why they play games. And I think you want to find your own values. In LA, um, scenic work is very important. We live in a city that has a lot of access to set design, you know, talented painters, prop masters. You're able to get a really cool scenic experience with nice props, Um, great environments. But if you're in another area that doesn't really have those expectations and you don't have access to those resources, you can, you want to consider what you're building um, and who you're hiring. Are you doing it all yourself? Are you actually trained to do this? You know, um, are you doing carpentry? Are you doing like, you know, any kind of scenic work? Are you getting props? Uh, Are you getting stuff from an antique store or from a thrift store? Those are all things to really consider in terms of your decor, your props and, and getting everything set up as well as your electronics. So are you doing it all on your own? If so, and you don't know what you're doing, it may take you a very long time. That stuff you can test and do before you get a space. So that's something that, you know, game plan wise, if you're really serious about this business and you want to make your money stretch as far as possible, signing the lease may be one of the later steps 
Maybe you've learned how to be an Adreno or Raspberry Pi programmer. Maybe you know a guy who's really good. Start prototyping. You don't need the space built up to start really designing your puzzles and getting that ready to go. So really, that's where you kind of want to have a lot of stuff already designed and built in some ways and then test it. That's the other big part, too. Testing is so important. I cannot even tell you the number of games that are I've played that just don't even consider testing. It is the lifeblood of really good game design. Because, mm-hmm. you know, think about you're a writer and you type out a first draft and like, done. No, that's where the editing begins. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, like for testing is so important. And really even it's just about seeing how human beings react in the space. If you, you know, the, the way I usually start is by doing paper and cardboard prototypes. It's where you just write stuff out and you just start doing things. Does the logic of the puzzle make sense? You know, and just, you can walk through, be in the room and sort of navigate people through, okay, this is a keypad. It's on cardboard. What would you do? And just see if the logic makes sense. Obviously it's not a perfect one-to-one, but you can catch really big flaws or ideas or kind of conflicts in space um, by just watching how people react in with cardboard and paper. And you've spent no money. You've spent no time building it. You know, it sucks to build something and then have to adjust afterwards and realize, oh crap, you know, that is a really bad, you know, a conflict with people are mixing these things up together or they don't get this thing. And after you've built it, it's a lot harder to readjust it than just not build it yet and keep testing until you get like the actual concept down and be like, oh, now I know how to actually build this and spend time smart. That's a really interesting point, actually, because I don't know anybody that has tested before they did any building. I, th- I think people get impatient. And again, it, it, I get it. When you're a business owner and rent is being due every month and you need a game, I get it. But to me, the concept and, and having this built into your business plan is, again, going back to why are you doing this? Are you doing this because of pride and you think you can do better or because of money or both? Well, guess what? Testing is going to fix both. Hopefully it's a healthy pride where you're like, I'm a great designer and being a great designer means being a great editor and being a great tester and being a great developer and not having an ego that you crap out gold. No one writes a perfect first draft. Having that healthy ego makes it where you understand that you're probably going to write some pretty bad puzzles first and pretty bad experiences. You know, the number of times people test a game for the first time and it ends up being real bad and taking, you know, triple the length that's normal. That's fine. That's good. You know, use that, figure out why it's so hard. It's like, you got a lot of rough edges, you know, you will change a lot of stuff, but again, it requires people to know why are you making this? Hopefully it's so you can entertain people. It's so you can make people feel smart and, and connected and enjoy your experience that you've made for them. And you don't want people to feel frustrated and dumb. And unfortunately a really badly tested game will make that happen, especially if a game master, you know, isn't communicating with the owner, people are getting stuck at this, you know, and keeping that process going even after you've opened. Um, So it's really important in my mind, you know, to do a couple of rounds of testing where even like the very first testing we did at Stash House, a lot of it was cardboard on paper and we had it in the actual space, but we just did a couple of tests about where where are people going? Because you want to think about a room, like a room is, you know, a room. People don't think about where people are naturally drawn to in a room. But if you change the lighting, if you change the paint, you can kind of dictate where people go first. What are the natural features of a room you might go to? Is there a really cool bookcase or a really cool feature that people are going to go want to look at? And if so, then lean into making that something that requires people to look at first. You know, if people are avoiding an area, you know, you make it brighter, make it put more light on it. It's just the ways to direct people is are, are really simple you know, with the tools you have, which is lighting and paint, you know, and worst case Mm -hmm. scenario, put a sign there. Like there's ways to really lean into it. Uh, So that to me was really helpful is just having stuff in cardboard and paper. And we didn't quite know where to paint and put the stuff yet. So we'd move it around and see where people were drawn to at first. And that really helped dictate things. So again, it's important to think about how human beings function. You know, human psychology is really valuable in terms of you know, just watching people, you know, and seeing where they move and making kind of this heat map of the room. And if people are always going over to this corner and there's nothing there, then put something in that corner. Like if people mm. are naturally drawn to it, make it part of it. People are going to f- go there anyway. You know, why not lean into the way people are moving? And if you start building your game that way, where it's this iterative process and, and it starts to really, you know, pile on 
to the idea of how people naturally flow in the game, you're going to build something that's a lot smoother. When you open, to me, it's like that's when the testing really begins. Because testing is usually you asking friends, colleagues, come and play. Their experience is always going to be a little bit biased psychologically. They're not paying. That immediately makes the game better. And they know you. They're going to be as supportive as possible and see you in a good light. The real test is when someone who doesn't know you pays you money and is feeling entitled as a customer to come and play. That's when your real feedback begins. And hopefully you've done a good job at listening to feedback, but you want to keep going. A game is really not ready until it's been open for three to six months. That's when you're running it for really entitled people. And when I use entitled, I don't mean in a snooty way. I mean, in they're a customer. Like you have a different, me as a friend is very different relationship to someone when I'm a customer. When I've paid my hard-earned money and scheduled time and picked this place with my friends to come, that's a very different sense of it's, oh, me coming to help a buddy out. If this is me as a customer coming. And psychologically, I'm expecting, especially if I'm in an area that has a lot of really good rooms, I'm going to go in with a certain level of expectation. And if that's not met, I'm going to be disappointed. So seeing what customers do, and this is where you get into the game mastering. By having staff that are trained to care on some level, that know the game backwards and forwards, that are watching and are able to write down and be part of the process. Are the people having fun? Where are they getting stuck? And really considering that if people like I, when a game master at the end of a game will be like, oh yeah, people always get stuck at that spot. And inside of my head, I want to yell at them and be like, then why don't you change it? If you're giving a hint for one area all the time, like you're never going to be able to make a hint proof game. But if you have hints always locked into one area, then fix it. You that the, mm. the, Clearly the game is telling you fix this thing. And that's where a game master is so valuable. Because if you're not running every single game, you can't see it. And that's where you want to see, like, you don't want to change something just because one game does it. But you, as you know your game well, you get blinders on. And that's what's really important to see how fresh eyes can see it and misinterpret things. You know, there are so many games I've played where, you know, you'll be, we'll be playing it three to six months after it's opened. And we'll do something really dumb, you know, in the game master's eyes you know, or in the owner's eyes. And then I'll go explain why we thought of it. And they're like, oh, my God, I never thought of how you could, you know, misinterpret those two things. And that's completely yeah. valid. And then that's a thing where like, oh, yeah, making this one change, this one tweak, this wording change, this lighting change can make the game so much better. And that's where always being willing to adjust and improve. Now, you don't want to tinker for no reason, because, again, it's about investment. Ideally, you're going to be moving on to a second or third game. You don't want to just keep reinventing the wheel. But you do want to make your base game solid to where, you know, six months in, it will feel better than day one. Um, you know, and the, the last step is just maintenance. You know, you got your staff hired, you got your, you know, business managed and make sure you maintain the hell out of it. You know, if stuff breaks to me, that is just, to me, that's unacceptable because as an owner, again, I want people to entertain people. I, I want, I love as an owner, entertaining people. I love making stuff that makes people feel special and fun and you know, whatever the emotion you're going for. I love that feeling of just making sure people feel really special. And when something is broken, it, it to me is a level of disrespect for the customer. I get it happens, but to me, if something breaks, you owe it to the customer to make it right. Charging full price mm-hmm. for a broken thing is like going to a movie and having five minutes just randomly go away and be like, hey, it happens. No, it's like you are, as an owner, it's a burden. Like you should really be taking care of your customers. So to me, it's like, you want to make sure you got backup props. Yeah. You want to make sure that if something goes wrong, you got fresh batteries that, you know, if something happens during a game, you know how to respond part of with stash house. Part of the thing is we are very particular with training. It is at least a month of you sitting and watching games before you're allowed to run one. Yeah. You need to know the game inside and out reset errors, unacceptable. However, I've done them. I've made them on the game. I designed it just happens. You want to make sure that you get people to be mindful. You want to make a flow chart that people can follow by really making reset errors. You know, they're never going to be at zero, but down to zero. And if you do catch them, fixing it, you know, stopping a game before it starts and saying, hey, can we fix this? Um, you want the experience to be better. It's better to stop something early if you notice it and, and, and fix it than let a game go on. 
and then have them discover it and at the end of the game say oh we reset that wrong sorry i'm like wait what you could have stopped us you know so to me it's really important that you're aware of reset that's a huge deal and after that it's a matter of again watching the customer making sure if something's not working you might want to take their word for it you know and really yeah. see like you should test everything and you should know sometimes stuff does go wrong in that case make sure the gm is on top of it you know distracted gming is really bad um a dedicated gm watching at all times you know who knows the game inside and out who knows the flow who knows the answers to everything so when they hear people talking when they see inputs if you've got a control system that you can see inputs you want to be able to be on top of things and and really make that experience with however your hint system or, or system works you just really want to make sure that things are going and if people are doing something they're close they almost have the answer but they're not hitting it right you know if they're getting frustrated you can tell in psychology you know to me it's not a hint to say try that again to give them that sort of level of like, yeah, you're doing it right. Like, just keep going. Where you don't want people to get angry or frustrated. And you can really see when human bodies start to get the arms crossed, the pacing, they'll say, this sucks, I'm frustrated. You really want to you know, intervene before that process. And again, that's why it's important to have a game master that knows how to watch people, but also the game flow. So that's just, again, a huge part of it. And if something breaks, they know how to deal with it. You know, I'm not expecting a staff member to run out and rewire something, but if something breaks, they can either help you bypass it or we have a replacement in the back. We have almost everything, duplicates or triplicates of everything. And so if something breaks between games, they can go out and really quickly replace it. But that's part of empowering and training our staff to make sure they know exactly what's going on. So, yeah, and that's pretty much it. Like that seems like a lot. And if it, it is, it's a ton. And that's why going into this business is not something to take lightly. I know a lot of people who have gone into this for different reasons and said, "Foo, this is harder than I expected. And some of them, you know, give up. Some of them close. Other people I know become better. And yeah. it's so impressive to see someone realize, oh, this is hard. I'm going to step up. And in owning a business, you will realize there's a lot you don't know. You can go in much more informed and with a plan and that will help you, but there's always going to be stuff that will come up unexpectedly, additional costs, um, you know, permitting inspections, you know, your programming is not working. Something is going to be a lot more expensive to produce. It just, those unexpected things are always part of the process. You can't stop them, but you can be prepared for them. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something you said about um, stopping people if you see something wrong. Uh, and I wondered, were you saying that from an owner's perspective or a player's perspective? So, for example, if I'm Games Master in a game that you're playing and I look ahead on the screens and I think, oh, no, I've, you know, I've missed that thing. I've left that prop out. Would you rather me stop you, go in, fix it, than let you continue? It depends. I think it depends on a couple of things. Is it a game breaking bug? If you've left out something that I'm not supposed to get until the very end and us having it is going to screw up the game flow, then yes. I would rather have that happen than have our game be less than ideal. Trust is very important. And to me, think of this. It, it is a matter of, okay, we're five minutes into a game and there's a prop out and we have it, we're trying to use it. And if it, it, it's not a, you know something we should have yet, it's going to mess up our thinking, you know, especially if it actually does unlock things later. If someone comes on the radio and says, hey guys, I'm so sorry, that is not supposed to be out. Can you go back into the lobby for a second and we'll fix this? To me, it's a few minutes of annoyance, but the game is going to flow properly and we'll forget it by the end. On the other end, you have a prop that now is throwing the game flow off. And by the end of it, we've got an hour you know, into the game and we're walking out going, God, that didn't really feel good. Something was off about that. I would rather people experience mm. the game as intended. So, but again, it, it, it's it, everything. There's so many different variables depending on what it is. A good example. To me, it's like, okay, we have a code. We know the code is one, two, three, four. And we're putting it into this keypad. And the code is right. And we're using it the right keypad, but it's not working. Maybe we're not hitting the buttons hard enough. Maybe there was a timeout. And we try it three or four times, and then we give up and go do something else. To me, that means that code is not active. And it's, it's either not good or it's not working on that keypad. I'm not going to try that again. At that point, if the game master sees they have the right code, they're doing it in the right spot and it's not working, intervene. Because what yeah, you're risking, yeah, to me, again, I've seen owners that don't do that. 
to oh, me, wow. it's, yeah, no, it, it's frustrating because again, you want to be on the side of the player and I get it. Breaking immersion hints that offering to me, that's not a hint that's saying you're doing the right thing. And to me, there might be a little bit of annoyance. I'm appreciative as a player when we're being told something that is going to make our playthrough better because something got screwed up. We're not touching something right. I'd rather hear that than us feel frustrated and stuck because how are we supposed to psychically interpret we're doing that wrong? You know? Yeah, absolutely. I do. I totally agree with that. Yeah, for sure. So, and, I, and I have done that several times. Happens quite a lot with um, combination padlocks. You know, right. they're trying it and they just haven't quite lined it up properly. And you know, and it happens a lot. So yeah, I always say, just try that again. And and if they really struggle, then obviously I would go in and, and help. But yeah, I would always encourage them when they're doing the right thing, definitely to say keep going. One of the things that I have wondered about before, and it's that horrible cold blood moment where the game has started and you see on the camera that, oh gosh, that lock is open or I've left that thing out. You've, you've only got a few seconds and you need to decide, right, do I interrupt this game? Do I leave it? And then you've got to quickly think through the consequences of both actions and, right. and make a decision. So do you sort of have a policy that you always intervene it depends. Um, it, it, we don't have a, a flat up policy, but we, it is if it's a game breaking bug. Taking care of customers for me is 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 economic sense, because yeah. customers are the lifeblood of this industry, and word of mouth is huge. And if people feel taken care of and they had a good experience, they're going to rate you highly. And forget like Yelp and those things can't help. But really, it's about you know you tell your friends this is really fun. That's the single biggest recommendation you can give us is telling people we had a great time. They took care of us. And if you are willing to treat people well, yeah. and to me, it's like, if you are not getting the game as we intended to design in the full capacity, we will give you some kind of, of incentive back. You know, to me, it's just, it's, it's good service. And you might, you know, not make the full amount you're expecting to make off that game. But what will happen is in turn, people will have a trust in you, a yeah. high level of respect. There are some games I know that unfortunately are always broken and they just make excuses and they expect you to pay full price. And to me, that is unacceptable. You know, especially as you become better and better ranked or known, the level of people traveling to you to see you, it grows. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, if I'm going to go play a game that I only get to experience once because I'm only going to be in the city once, you know, and I'm traveling specifically for this set of games and it is broken and the owner is not compensating me in some way, or the owner is not like trying to make it right. To me, that is bad service. Any other industry in hospitality and restaurant, any other customer service-based industry will absolutely take care. And again, don't be a dick, like don't be a jerk customer. But the, again, if something, if you're getting, if I buy a dozen cookies and I get nine, it's ridiculous to expect you to pay full price. You want people to at least feel calm. You know, I would rather get the 12 and give you the full price. But if something is really broken and you're not mm. closing down, I want either reasonable adjustment or a price adjustment. Like it's just how it works as a customer psychologically. And so it's ridiculous to see sort of really good businesses operating with that level of like, no other business gets away with that. You know, it's not like they should feel like you let them in the doors and they get a portion of the experience. No, no, they need the full experience. Otherwise, to me, what are you paying full price for? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm curious from your point of view, because you've GM'd for so long, I'm curious so much like how, you know, in terms of design and noticing errors, like does it frustrate you to see a game where people always get stuck at the same point? And how do you feel about like recommending changes and, and going through that process? Yeah, um, I was thinking about that when you were talking about it. And I've I've had it both ways. So I am very intent on watching customers and I do enjoy the psychology of it much like I think you do from what you've been saying and I will take note and if I, I I want the game to be the very best it can but because I'm a step down I'm not the owner I'm not right. the designer um I can only go so far so it's happened both ways for me in the past I have recommended change and change has happened and that's been great but I've also recommended change and it's not happened and then that can be frustrating because you have to keep saying to the customer like yeah I'm sorry that doesn't work properly or or that 
yeah, or, or they just complain to you all the time. Oh, that bit didn't quite make sense. And and then the next team, oh, that I couldn't quite figure out that puzzle. It didn't really make sense. And you're just like, yeah, this is like the sixth time I've heard this today. Um, but the owners won't listen to you and, or they, you know, I don't know for whatever reason, they don't want to change it. So it's really, really important uh, for an owner as well to listen to your GMs. Um, a thousand percent, a thousand percent. Yeah. Cause they are the ones that are watching it all day, every day, and they will get to know it in, in inside and out. And they will get to know where the sticking points are and what works and what doesn't work. And what I sometimes do is tell the problem, but also try and come up with a solution. That's smart. Um, That's really smart. Yeah, I think I think building that into your procedure is like, are you noticing the same issues, like writing down areas where you have to give hints, like any kind of data collection is really valuable, you know, and making it easy for the GM, because again, they're working a job, you know, some people may not be passionate about the job. I think the big goal, though, is we do want to empower staff, I think, you know, you want to incentivize them to like what they do and have fun. And, you know, I get it running the same game can be a doldrums. But if it's a good game, and they have fun doing it, like, lean into that. So for us, you know, we do, a, and I know some companies that do really cool incentives, which is if there's a problem in the game and you, you know, recommend the fix, you'll get a payment, you'll get a bonus. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you recommend people come and they use your booking code, uh, you get a percentage of that game. Yeah. So like really incentivizing the idea of like talking up, being proud of where you work. Like, again, GM is not a full-time career for some people. And, you know, we don't want people to stay with us. Like we have, we are lucky that Stash House had a really great staff you know, before COVID and we would love to get them back now that we're reopening. And if we can't, like we get it. But for us, it was always the idea that, you know, none of them are want to do this full time. Like they want to be an actor or they want to be an editor. And so we will hire them to do editing for our videos. We'll hire them to be performers, like using our staff and using their skill sets and empowering them. Like it's a great when they want to be a set designer or a programmer and you can utilize their skills and pay them for that, obviously. Uh, and make them feel like proud of the game they've worked on. You know, and since game masters are the ones that, like you said, see the game being run, they have a special insight. It, to me, GMing is, is just as crucial as good design. Because in the end, an average game can be made better with a great GM. Yeah, and a great game can be made terrible with a bad GM. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's one of the best experiences, and I use best in the ironic sense. It was a game I played with, it was a bunch of other owners. And this is the thing, you know, I, as an owner and me with the friends I know who are also owners, always are, are, are fans of the space first. That's why we open games because we are fans of the space and we want to do things that are supportive and strong that make better games. But we also love playing and being on the other side of it. To me, I enjoy playing more than you're designing. Like I love feeling the feels and going through all the adventure steps in a game. And we were playing a game that um, the GM basically takes us in a room and it's like, okay, uh, here's the room. And I, I hate it when a GM takes you in the room. I hate it. To me, the room reveal should be a big part of it. Yeah. And I love that discovery. And instead, when you walk in the room, that's a hit of adrenaline. And the GM's like, and I'm already looking around, looking at all the spaces, looking what I'm going to do. To me, that should be the first moment I see the space. But instead, the GM's like, okay, everyone, here's the clock on the wall. Uh, there's a trap door right here. Uh, it's going to open when you're in the other room. So just make sure you're aware that this trap door is going to open right here. And uh, yeah. And then that mm-hmm. same GM. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, wait, what, why, why are you saying that? Like, <laughs> He's just what? giving away the reveal. Yeah. yeah. Why would you say that? Um and then that we did that game and then we went to the next game in the same company, same GM. And the GM just starts giving us the answers. What do you mean? We are literally doing the game. They're like, so look on the fingernails on that. It was like a serial killer room. And, you know, and we weren't stuck. Like we were blazing through it. And there was one point where, you know, one person said, I wonder what this means, like rhetorically out loud to the group, like calling attention to it. And then yeah. the GMs are like, oh, it's the, the fingernails have numbers on them and you want to. And oh, I almost no. want to be like, be quiet. And so they, the person just clearly was lonely and wanted to like be helpful. But it was, we ended up getting three or four different answers preemptively. And I think all of us just started being like, please be quiet. Like, we're not talking to you. Like, please stop. We want to play. And then at one point, I think we hurt their feelings because there was a point where um, a prop broke 
it was a lock that all the dials fell off of. Oh, wow. That's pretty broken. Because um, yeah, you can have letter locks that that have a little security thing that, you know, keeps Oh, the, one of those types where they all slide yeah. off the end. Yeah, I know. And so it was really loose. And the 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 you know, thing on the edge fell off and all the tiles slid off. So there, there were some awkward moments like that where you're like, I don't know what to do. Because that one, we had the lock opened. But then it required you to know what all the letter locks said. And since that had, the letters had fallen off, I'm like, does anyone remember the code for this? And we're oh, like, was wow. it? And it, it had broken. And so that, I'm that's like, that's when your GM should have jumped in. Exactly. Yeah. And so the GM was silent. And I'm oh, like, no. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. Did we hurt your feelings? I'm sorry. Can we actually get some help? And they they didn't speak to us the rest of the game. So it was definitely an awkward scenario that was really uncomfortable because the game itself was fine. Some cool scenic design, but in reality, it just it made it really frustrating because it's like you want the flow of the game to work well. And again, a really good GM, right when you're beginning to question something and begin to feel a little frustrated, the GM is on it. And that to me makes me really, that to me, like I want to applaud. And, you know, I love recommending to like a, a host or an owner being like, this person is great. Like they should get recognition for making this game, which is a good game, even better. Yeah, I've had that experience as well. And I've shouted out a few GMs um, on various episodes because they do just make it great. And it it is still quite rare to come across an excellent GM. Um, I say rare, maybe not rare, but it's, it's still uh, more normal to come across a GM that's just there to do a job and mm-hmm. is not that passionate about it. That's still yeah, the norm of- here. So when you yeah. do come across one that is brilliant, I just, I really do make sure that I tell them and I'm like, you are really good at this job. You need to continue. You need to carry on. This <laughs> This is good for you. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, I think people love hearing that, especially when you are sort of an unsung hero. And again, I wish owners were more appreciative of the fact that like, again, a really good game. It's like, you are a chef, you've made this amazing recipe and someone, uh, you know, prepared it. And then you, the person the taking out can add too much pepper on top of it and ruin it. Or they can add just a little salt and like deliver it and be really nice to the staff you know, or the, the customers. And it just adds the flavor so much more. I'm curious on your end, what like training wise, like what kind of experience do you come at, you know, coming from a game that you knew nothing about to running it? How do you sort of approach that process, breaking it down? You know, is it that you appreciate how much training a company does or do you kind of have your own approach to really digesting the game and GMing? Like, I'm really curious about sort of your philosophy from an owner's standpoint, hiring and training GMs. The very, very first thing I would want to do is if I haven't done already is play the game. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So I, I, you, you have to, to know it from the inside. You have to know where the wow moments are, where the aha moments are and where the spectacular bits are and all that mm-hmm. kind of it. You have to kind of know the feelings. You have to know what the customers are going to be feeling. So to help you run it. Um, so definitely that's the first bit. I would always expect to have some kind of written flow chart um, or explanation of the game to follow. I would always want to just shadow for a while. Not really any specific set time just basically until I felt like I knew the game well enough that's what I would want uh, to to happen it has happened to me once where I was learning a new game I'd watched it I'd played it once I'd watched it once and then the games master called in sick and uh, they were like please can you run it (laughs) so I did um it it, it went really well it was fine yeah it was good Um, and luckily I was quite an experienced games master by that point so I think that training a fresh person to be a games master is a lot more laborious than training a GM a new game right 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 so, I think they got yeah. that good point when you when you know how to be a games master and if you've got experience of it then learning a new game is a lot easier than learning everything from scratch but yeah after the after the shadowing then you have a go um yourself uh, uh but with somebody watching yeah. you yeah, yeah swapping where you the shadow is now watching you yeah 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 and then only when you think that you can answer every question or you know all of the points of the game and all of the hints and the flow and everything and that's when you should be let loose on your own that's what i think 
No, I think that's, had, that's a good process. Yeah, I think it's a yeah. good process. I've had a games master before when I was playing, you know, I asked them the question, what do we do if we want to get out of the room? And he didn't know. And I was like, this is a really basic Ooh, question. Yeah, that, that That's like day one stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't know. So uh, yeah. And then his, uh, you know, supervisor boss, whoever came running up the stairs. I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. He's new. Right. You do this. And there's an emergency escape button, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, he should not be, have been left on his own. He's not ready. No, definitely not. Yeah. That's, that's so scary to trust someone. Yeah. To me, like trust is really important, but at the level they feel ready. Like we make our staff speed run the game. They know how to do and solve the game in record time on their own without any clues. They just know every answer. They know how the, not only every answer, but also how you get the answer. They know the intended flow. Like that to me is like crucial. And then you have the shadowing because it's difference between you can know all the answers, but then once you watch a game in action, you get the regular flow people have, like you get the process. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious with you, do you, um, have you experienced a lot of games that have a, you know, whether it's an actor or a narrative that relies on the GM and the hint system being in world. No, I've never had that. It's basically if, it, if a team were that good, they could get through it without any hints whatsoever. I've never had it where the, the GM needs to interject for any reason. Yeah, because there's like the stash house, we have a, a, a hint device that is part of sort of the narrative and flow that is sort of telling story along the way and, and ambient sort of stuff along the way if people want and pay attention to it. And so it's interesting seeing like sometimes, you know, a version of it is like you're on a space station and the GM is in the role of mission control. So they're playing a role and they're talking to you as if you are the astronauts and they're trying to give hints in narrative. So like, I'm curious if you, what you think of, you know, is it, what, is it clunky if you have sort of lines written out and you're giving hints from the perspective of, you know, you're talking about it as if there are astronauts and, you know, giving it sort of in the narrative spin rather than just being direct. I see. I see. Yeah. Sorry. I think I misunderstood your question. We do have that. Um, our hint systems are all a character mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. can interact with the players yeah interact with the room sort of thing and yeah absolutely we include hints within our uh within our narrative yeah so nice um if they're getting a bit frustrated there's a bit where a a key is hidden in a in a plane in a toy plane they might be getting a bit frustrated or you know whatever and then you just be like oh you know sometimes things are hidden in plain sight you know and sort of things like that. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. I do use those. Um, and they're really great. But what I find is that it's, it's, it's not that much that the teens want to interact with the, with the personality, you know, I, f- mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of them, I don't know, they like, maybe it makes them nervous or they, you know, don't want to ask for too much help. I think, right. I think quite a lot of teams these days are Almost frightened that you're going to help them without them asking if they're a yeah, there's, more there's, experienced team. There's definitely bad companies have definitely damaged or, or frightened people. Yeah. It sounds like globally, it seems like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I get a lot more teams these days come in and sort of say, right, we don't want any help. We don't just don't help us, you know. And I and I'm like, that's fine, <laughs> that's okay. I, what I normally say to that is, well, what I would normally do is if you are starting to fall behind, if it looks like you're not actually gonna make it. I would say to you, would you like some help? And then it's entirely up to you. Yeah, that's low. I think the consent-based approach is really lovely. And because I, I think people are right. Ego is again, oh, we can do this. But I think you're right. Other people, it's people also trust is so big. Like they don't trust a company to not let them ask at their own pace. Mm. Um, so I think it is nice when you offer consent. Um, with Stash House, this, the, the, the device that you, you could ignore it. You don't have to pay attention to it. It's like, we're not saying, hey, look, it's there if you want it. And again, if people ask for assistance, then we'll be there like right on top of it. So it's the idea again, if it should be consent based. And then with the question occasionally of like, Hey, like you don't want to say like, you're, you're guy, you guys are sucking out there, but definitely like <laughs> the pace, I think the pacing thing is really nice. Cause from us, like, you know, I love playing games. I honestly don't remember the last time we didn't get out. It's been years since we failed to roam, but it's more of, because we're okay with asking for hints. Like I have no, yeah. ego. I don't care about setting records to me. It's about having fun and experiencing a room. And if we get stuck, like 
you know, I want to have fun. Like, I don't care about asking for help. And oftentimes I'm more happy I did. I have no shame. And I I, I wish more groups were a little open to that, but I think it does require, be, again, it, it's that in the sense, and not that I'm an expert, but I've done this enough where when you know everything you don't know, you know when you're not making progress. You know when you're not heading in the right direction. And that's where, you know, a nudge can really help. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we are totally on the same page when it comes to that. Yeah. I'm not, I will ask for help if I need it. I would, I, I have said to some teams, you know, I said, because you can tell sometimes when you're doing the introduction with a team that there are a couple of stubborn ones and there are a couple of people that just want to complete the room and have fun where the, the stubborn ones are like, no, we are going to do this. It's cheating to ask for help. That's a line I hear all the time. You know, I say, well, there may come a time in the room where you have to think, do we want to fail this because mm-hmm. we don't ask for help? Right. Or do we want to ask for a clue and make it all the way through? I said, that's just something you have to consider. If the answer, it's not wrong. It's your experience. Right. But um, it's, it's up to you and that might happen. Yeah. There's, there's some games I remember playing where it blew my mind. So there was a game um, went in and was doing a, um, it was just a basic lock and it was, it was something involving time zones and maps, you know, an, a map you get an office store and some time zones. And there's a letter that told you the different cities you were in. So we're like, okay, so it's this time, this time, it's this number. We put in the lock, didn't work. I was like, okay, what else could it be? And so now we're thinking really outside the box. We're trying all of these different, we tried the same number reversed in different orders and it's just not working. And so then of course, you know, we do the thing where we spend the last dial, we try, you know, swapping different numbers. And so we asked for a hint and like, they say, you know, what we were doing was right, basically. But, but they, you could tell the GM was not watching us because mm. they give us a hint saying, like, do the thing you just did. And we're like, we did. And silence. Yeah. And like, can we get another help? Like, we're trying that number. And then they just say the hint again. And now we're getting really frustrated because it's like, what else do you want us to do? Like, this is the right lock. Like, there's only one lock right here. This is it. So finally, the game, we lose. Oh, um, gosh. And I think we'd done three puzzles. Wow. And the game master comes in and is like, hey guys, you did such a great job. So sorry. People seem to really get stuck on that one. And then I'm like, no, can you show us? Yeah. And so she comes over and she puts the code in and it doesn't work. And she's mm-hmm. like, that's weird. This should open it. Wow. Uh, someone had changed the code on the lock. <gasps> oh no. It didn't work. But she just let you carry on and just get and just lose the game. Yeah, like Based three on something in. that she knew should work. And so she's like, oh, that explains why people are having a hard time with this today. That's awful. I hope you got some money back on that one. They let us play through. So like, she's like, oh my God, guys, I'm so sorry. Like, I had no idea. And I'm thinking that should have been evident from the very first game, like that had issues with that. Yeah, you you should have one known that we had the right code. You should have been listening. It clear she wasn't. So uh, yeah, they let us play through. So she she they ended up having to like break open the lock because someone had changed it. We we played through and beat the game, but it was a little bit bittersweet that it had we had to point that out. And I'm like, how many other customers left that day thinking, yeah. God, this sucked because yeah, they got three puzzles in, and they couldn't solve this thing. And the GM is just like obliquely giving you the same hint over and over again. You're like, we've tried that. Yeah, that's really bad. Yeah, to me, that's the example of like why paying attention is so valuable. Because, you know, if someone asks for a hint, maybe because not because they're stuck, but because the thing isn't working. And that's why like you have to pay attention and watch and figure out like, oh, that isn't working. That lock is broken. Like, let me intervene. So, you know, they don't just get stuck, but also they can actually progress, you know. And it just sounds like that GM in particular just didn't even care enough to want to check. Right. They exactly. just, just let it keep happening and didn't even question it, which is crazy to me. But this is um something that I sort of insist on now for the recruitment process is that people are to an extent an, uh, an escape room enthusiast, you know, not they don't mm-hmm. have to have played hundreds or anything like that, but to have played a few and to have enjoyed them and to like them and enjoy them, you know? 
So no, I think that's, that's kind of a minimum requirement now. I, I think that's awesome that you do that because like for us too, like, you know, I, we take our staff members out to pre-COVID times. We take them once a month or so out to games so they could play other games, see what's out there and, yeah. and have their own. So at the end too, they could be literate because people are going to want to say, oh, what else do you like? What are games you enjoy? And I want them to be able to honestly recommend games they like, like they're people, like they're not telling the company line. I want them to be able to talk about you know, the stuff they enjoy and let that also see like as a customer, like what other GMs are doing and what they like and don't like and to be able to know what's out there. To me, it's just so important rather than operating in a vacuum. And so it's so cool that you have that sort of standard because I wish more companies had that sort of love. I get hiring is hard, hiring good people is hard, but you know, when you could at least set that minimum barrier and, you know, once they're hired, expose them to more stuff so they can sort of be good at their jobs. Like to me, that should be a minimum and it's awesome you do that. Cool. Well, I could talk for ages on this, but uh, we have been going, I think, over an hour now. So I think we should probably finish it there, if that's all right with you. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's fun to be able to talk about this level because usually people focus on the design aspect. But the idea of opening it from the business standpoint and keeping it sustained, repaired and staffed with good GM is just, to me, so important. And I'm glad you're bringing this issue to light. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being the person to finally um, bring this subject to my podcast. So as I said, I've never been able to speak about it. So that's been great. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to a trip to LA at some point. I'll let you know. Yes, look forward to it. (laughs) All right, Tommy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you everybody else for listening. And until next time, keep on escaping.